It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sah. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We're going to be in the book of 2 Peter today, 2 Peter chapter 2. We spent over a year in the book of 1 Peter, but we're going to be tackling 2 Peter slightly different. 2 Peter has three chapters, and so we're going to cover a chapter um, per week, and so we're going to be spending three weeks in 2 Peter. We're going to try to give you as much detail as possible, but obviously we won't be able to, right? Perhaps today more questions will be raised than answers provided, but we're just trying to stay at the high-level view to show you an overarching theme of the book. Last week, our West Campus pastor, Ross Lester, led us through 2 Peter chapter 1, and wasn't it so good? It was just so good. For those of you that haven't heard it, um, highly recommend going and checking it out on the podcast. So last week we had a guy from South Africa with like the coolest accent, and this week you have an Asian guy with kind of like a weird Texas slash Asian accent, a Texasian accent. Um, Not as cool, but you're stuck with me today. Um, So as Ross shared with us last week, being a Christian is not an easy thing. Following Jesus in this world It's not something to be taken lightly. It's a glorious thing, but it's not an easy thing, is it? It's an incredible joy filled with weighty joys, but it's not a leisurely kind of an experience. And because God knows obedience is hard, because God knows following Jesus in this world is going to be tremendously difficult, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, therefore God has given us grace. Ross shared with us last week that God just didn't leave us to ourselves to figure life out, but that he gave us the grace of his power. He gave us the grace of his precious and very great promises to have all things necessary to live lives of godliness. Many times we think God gives us grace, and grace makes it okay for us to disobey, right? Many times we think the purpose of grace is so that it will make it okay when we fail and, it, and when we disobey, and it is that. But 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us that the reason why God gives us grace is not so that we'll disobey and still feel like it's okay. But the reason why God gives us grace is so that we may be enabled to obey. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. He has granted to us the grace of his divine power and he's granted to us the grace of his precious and very great promises, it says. And that's what 2 Peter chapter one is essentially all about. God saying to us, I've designed you, right? I've created you. I've saved you, and I know how life works best. The creator of the universe knows how life works best. I know how you'll flourish most, and it's found in trusting me and obeying my word. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is showing us that God is offering us the grace of his precious and very great promises for all those who would be submitted to him. It's an amazing chapter. But then we move into 2 Peter chapter 2, And God is not done offering us grace, but his grace offered here is going to look and feel a little different. It's going to sound a little different. Perhaps it doesn't feel like grace, but nevertheless, it is. 
Whereas in chapter one, God offers the grace of his precious and very great promises for all those who would trust and obey him, in chapter two, God offers the grace of his threats. God offers us the grace of his perilous and very terrifying promises for all those who would reject and turn away from him. But it's still grace. In 2 Peter chapter one, is like the carrot, and 2 Peter chapter two is like the switch. And many of us, we get turned off to portions of the scripture like this, right? But know that oftentimes the most loving thing to do is to warn, and sometimes the most positive way to be is to be negative. And so if your kid is standing on the edge of a cliff and they're about to take one more step and fall and die, what do you do as a parent? You yell, you say, stop! Don't take one more step. If you do, you're gonna fall and die, right? And what if your kid turns around and your kid says, you're being so negative right now. I just can't deal with you when you're being like this. I just can't listen to you. Well, wouldn't that be ludicrous? And so throughout the Bible, because God is a loving, heavenly Father who's watching out for us, he does this. He doesn't just give us precious and very great promises. He threatens us sometimes. And 2 Peter is a very good example. Because we're his, because he loves us, because he wants us to experience the flourishing that comes from trusting him and obeying him, he offers us the grace of two kinds of promises. The grace of his precious and very great promises and the grace of his threatening and very perilous promises. Both are God's grace to us. And that's the main point of today's message. When we get to portions of the scriptures and we start reading and we're like, I don't know what that means. I just know I'm scared. I just don't know I don't like it. I just know it makes me feel really uncomfortable. How, what lens through which do we view those texts? How can we process it? Hopefully by the end of today, you'll see it as God's grace to you. So we're looking at God's threatening grace today. And we'll be asking three basic questions concerning God's threatening grace. Number one, when does God threaten? When do we need God's threatening grace? Number two, what is the threat? What does God threaten? And number three, why is it grace? God threatens us, it doesn't feel like grace, but nevertheless, why is it grace? First question, when does God threaten? God's threatening grace is for when there's a threat. When there's a threat to God's people, when there's a threat against God's people, God has a threat for God's people. It's a threat, but it's not to, against, it's for us. When there's the threat of God's people believing false things about him and his word, when there's the threat of the, of the proneness of our own hearts to run off and away from him, that's when God threatens. And so what is the threat that God is addressing in 2 Peter chapter two? Verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will, be see, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The clear and present danger and threat that God's people are experiencing was the threat of false teachers. P. 
Peter tells us in verse 1, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, right? But that's not the only threat. There's also the threat of the proneness of our own hearts to believe and embrace that false teaching. Verse 2 says, and many will follow their sensuality. And notice in verse 1 that Peter doesn't just say that there are false teachers, that there were false teachers, but that there will be false teachers. He's saying that false teachers weren't just around in the early church, but that anytime, anywhere, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached, there will be false teachers who twist and distort that gospel. And make no mistake, there are false teachers of God's word all around us, even today. And why is it such a threat to God's people? Why is false teaching such a serious threat that God sees it fit to threaten terrible things if we follow after what they're saying? Because there are certain things in this world that if we believe it, if we embrace it, it will destroy us. It will destroy us. Look at verse one again. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Destructive heresies, Peter says. There are truths in this world that if you ignore it, if you believe wrongly, well, it doesn't really matter. There won't be any real consequences. If you believe that the sky is green or the grass is purple, well, you're wrong, but there's no real consequences to believing that. But there are other truths in this world that are so critical, it's so essential, it's so precious, it's so weighty that your eternity hangs on it. There are truths like that in this world. And so there were false teachers then, and there are false teachers today that aren't just teaching harmless and innocuous things, but they're teaching things that if you believe, if you embrace it, it will destroy you forever. And so who are these false teachers, and what are the marks of a false teacher? We see at least three things that mark them, the things that made them such a threat to God's people. Number one, these are people that claim to be Christians. They claimed to be Christians. Number two, they pursued passions of the flesh. And number three, they were very likable. They were very likable. So let's look at these quickly. First, they claimed to be Christians. Look at verse one again. There will be false teachers among you, it says. Among you. In other words, they didn't come from the outside. They came from the inside. False teachers are people who claim to be Christians. You know, a Buddhist monk that is teaching about Buddhism or an imam that's teaching about Islam, in a sense, they're not false teachers. We would disagree with what they believe, but they're not teaching under some false pretense, right? A Buddhist monk is teaching about what? Buddhism. An imam is teaching about what? Islam. But these are addressed as false teachers because Peter is saying these are people who claim to be Christians teaching about Christianity, but in fact they're not. They're neither Christian nor teaching about Christianity. What seems to be happening was that the false teachers of Peter's day were claiming that Jesus wasn't really human. They were denying his humanity, his incarnation, his death on the cross. They were saying that Jesus was just God's spirit, and so they taught that Christianity doesn't really have anything to do with matter, doesn't have anything to do with the body. And so they were saying that what we do with our bodies doesn't really matter. And in fact, the more sensuality and sexuality that you pursue, the more you show your true Christian freedom apart from the law. And so we see the second mark of a false teacher. 
namely that they pursue passions of the flesh, whether it's money or sex or approval of man, that's what the teachers would focus on. That's what they were going after. They were saying all those things that you desire, you're free to do it all. Look at verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. Look at verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. They, they said, let's go on sinning so that grace may increase. They said, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. And because they, were, they had a wrong view of Jesus, they were coming to all sorts of wrong conclusions about what he taught. And ultimately, that's what a heresy is. What is a heresy? It's something that points us to a false Jesus. The nature of any heresy is such that Jesus Christ is some measure or form diminished, right? And so what naturally follows is that all of his teachings and all of his teachings are distorted and manipulated. If you could take the person of Jesus and distort him and diminish him, then what comes naturally is to take his teachings and diminish him and distort it to fit with our own tastes and preferences. And remember, Peter says they were teachers, which means they taught. They used words, they gave plausible reasoning for why people should abandon biblical teaching on sexuality. And they did it in a winsome way, which is the third mark of the false teacher, which is that they are likable. The reason why they're such a threat is because they're likable and winsome. False teachers don't get a following by being rough and harsh, they get a following by being nice and funny. Paul is addressing a similar situation in Romans 16. And he says in verse 18 that by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. It's described as the tickling of the ears, right? By smooth talk and flattery. So when Peter says in verse 14 that they entice unsteady souls, and Paul tells us in Romans 16 that they deceive the hearts of the naive. Well, you may picture a false teacher as someone that looks and talks like Voldemort, but Paul says, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The word for flattery simply means blessing. And so they may say, I have a word for you that I want to bless you, right? I want to give you a teaching that's going to make, you, make your life easier and better. I have a blessing for you. And smooth talk doesn't necessarily mean slippery talk, but it means pleasant and plausible. It seems to make sense. And so the reason why false teachers are so dangerous and are such a threat to God's people is because they deceive. They do that. They point to a diminished and distorted version of Jesus. They do that, but not with the sinister voice dressed in all black, but by pleasant and plausible words with the warm smile. In other words, you'll enjoy listening to them. In other words, you'll just like them. You'll like being around them. And so that's why they're so dangerous. It's like if a Shady man, dressed in dirty clothes, pulled up in a dirty truck as your kid is walking home from school and they say, get in the truck, kid, right? In a sense, is that man dangerous? Yes, but how much more dangerous, how much more of a threat is the, is the nice looking person, right? 
dressed well, pulling up in a nice car, gently rolling down the window with a smile on their face saying, hey, I'm a friend of your parents. And they give some correct details about you. And they say, your parents asked me to come pick you up and take you to where they're at. How much more dangerous and threatening is that person? Your kid knows to run away from the dirty old man in the truck, but does your kid know to run away from the nice, good-looking person with a smile? Do you see why false teachers are such a threat to God's people? And so when is God's threatening grace necessary? When there is a real and present threat to God's people. Now, second question, what is the threat? What exactly is God threatening? Let's read verses four through six. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Verses four through six, they encapsulate what God is threatening. And what is he threatening? He's threatening swift and absolute judgment and destruction. Peter mentions three groups that God's judgment and wrath fell upon, and his point is this. If God did not spare these, then he won't spare you either if you reject him. He mentions the fallen angels, the ancient world of the ungodly during the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah. First, he tells us in verse four that God did not spare angels when they sinned. What's Peter's point? He's saying angels are the most glorious and mighty beings under God, but all their beauty, all their dignity and worth was of no use when they sinned and God was unsparing in his sentence. And why is this applicable for us today? Because the Bible also tells us that there's a certain dignity and a worth and a value about us because we're created in God's image. And what Peter is showing us is that no amount of our dignity and worth and value will spare us from God's judgment if we belittle and diminish the dignity and the worth of Jesus. No dignity and worth of ours will spare us because we are diminishing the dignity and worth of Jesus and follow after false teachers. And think about the angel's proximity to God. Think about the proximity that they had to God's presence and his word. Think about their high position. And none of these things made them immune to falling away, did it? He's saying just because you're an elder or a pastor, just because you're a deacon, just because you're an MC leader and have taught Bible studies, perhaps you've been attending church for years, don't think that you're immune to falling away. Don't assume that you're safe from falling into false doctrine and walking away from Jesus. Be sober-minded, be watchful, pray, pay much more careful attention to the truth of God's word. Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Then in verse five, Peter tells us that God did not spare the ancient world, but that he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Well, what's Peter's point here? He's saying, don't fall into the trap of worshiping a God of your own making, and worshiping a God of your own imagination. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean that I hear people who claim to be Christians say all the time things like, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. Have you heard this? Have you said this? 
I just can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. I just believe in a God of love and acceptance and forgiveness. So you're saying just because you can't believe in a God who would send people to hell, therefore there is no God who sends people to hell. Is that true? How do you deal with the flood then? You might say, well, I just don't believe that part of the scripture. Well, then how do you not believe that part of the scripture and still believe other parts of the scripture that you do like? You can't pick and choose. You won't have any confidence other parts of the scriptures are true if there are parts of the scripture that you point to and say That's, that didn't really happen. But don't you see, reality doesn't bow down to your beliefs. Your beliefs have to bow down to reality. And what reality says is that there is a God in heaven who destroyed the entire ancient world and sent them to hell because they rejected him. Peter is saying God's judgment is real. His wrath is real. And you won't be spared just because you don't believe in a God who would do such a thing. He's done it before and he'll do it again to all those who would reject him. And third in verse six, Peter says that God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes and condemned them to extinction. What's Peter's point here? He's trying to be as clear and direct as he can. He's saying God punishes sexual sins. Make no mistake, God punishes sexual sins. The false teachers were saying that it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Following God's intent and design for sexuality doesn't matter, right? But Peter is saying, don't you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? And this is the false teaching of today, isn't it? And in many ways, this is the false teaching of today, that Jesus was, in fact, more permission-giving when it comes to sex and gender and marriage, and that in fact he's not as strict as the church of God has understood God's word to say for the last 2,000 years. And these things are being taught by winsome and likable people, isn't it? And we're tempted to believe it. But church, their teaching isn't anything new. They didn't, they didn't do some digging into the scriptures that no one else did in the last 2,000 years of God's church and come to some new conclusions about Jesus. Jesus was not gone more than 30 years before false teachers came up on the scene to give more license to Christian sexuality. But Peter is saying, don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah. God does care about sexual sins. Peter is saying God's judgment and wrath fell on these and it's going to fall on you if you reject God's word and follow after these false teachers. And these threats are as serious as they come, isn't it? But why? Why is he being so serious? Is God just being dramatic? It's so serious because the consequences for falling away is so serious. God threatens so seriously because the consequences of falling away is so serious. The parent is yelling as loudly as they can, stop, don't take one more step or you'll die. Why? Because the consequence for taking one more step is so serious. And in case we're still missing the seriousness of God's threats, Let's look at the last verses, starting with verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, if you really look at those verses, those are some scary verses right there. Peter says, if you've come to a certain knowledge of Jesus, and so escape the sinfulness of this world, 
but then once again get entangled and overcome by the allures and the promises of this world. Like Timothy says of Demas, Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. If you do this, Peter says, your last state has become worse than the first, and that it would have been better for you to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn away. Peter says it's like a dog returning to its vomit and a pig returning back to its mud pit. What in the world does this mean? Does this mean that a Christian can lose their salvation? Is that what Peter is saying? Is God taking the threat all the way to that level? Is he saying, Christian, I know I've saved you, but if you turn away, I'm gonna take your salvation away. Is that what God's threatening? John in the book of 1 John describes a group of people that fell away from Jesus. He says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John says, they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. That is a strong statement. So what is he saying? He's saying real Christians last. He's saying real Christians, they stay to the end. And if they don't stay to the end, it's not as though they were really Christians, but then they fell away and lost their salvation. If they don't last to the end, what Peter is saying, it doesn't matter how much they look like Christians. It, must, it doesn't matter how much they acted like Christians and tricked all of us even. It means that they really weren't saved. They were not of us. Peter is not teaching that God's elect can lose their salvation. What he is teaching is that you can be a church member and still go to hell. What he is teaching is that you can be a pastor who preaches and still go to hell. You can be a Bible teacher, still go to hell. He's saying no matter how much you look like a Christian on the outside, no matter how much you tricked everybody into believing you're a Christian, perhaps even tricked yourself, but if eventually you run off and you wander away, never to repent and return, then you were never really saved. And that's the real key part, never to repent and return, because I don't know about you, but I wander away all the time, right? There's a proneness in my heart that causes me to wander away from God and his word all the time, but by his grace, he convicts me by his spirit, and I repent, and I return, and that is the mark of a believer. The mark of a believer is not a person who never walks away. The mark of a believer is a person who walks away, but always returns, always returns. But the mark of an unbeliever is a person who walks away never to repent, never to return ever again. And so Peter is talking about a people who came to a certain knowledge of Jesus, but not a saving knowledge. Like in the parable of the four soils, God's word had gotten into the soil, into their life to a certain extent, but just not all the way in. They got around God's word, they got around God's people, even so that their lives begins to change. Right? They start looking more and more like Christians, they start talking and acting like Christians, but because God's word didn't make it all the way in, because they were never truly surrendered to Jesus. When the testing comes, when the worries of this world comes in, and when they see that the pleasures of this world and all that they're missing out on, they walk away. They don't endure. They went out from us because they were not of us. Look at verses 20 and 21 again. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. 
Peter says, the more you know of Christ and his way, the more severe will be your judgment for not trusting him. The more you know of Christ and his way, the more severe will be your judgment for not trusting him. Better to have never known it than to know it and then turn away. I think Peter is just repeating what he heard Jesus say. What Jesus said about Judas when he said it would have been better for him never to have been born. Why? Because Judas was a person who was with Jesus for three years around him every single day, right? So how much, more, how much worse is, is a person like him rejecting Jesus than a person who was never around Jesus? And when Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. What Peter is saying and what Jesus is saying is that it's one thing for a stranger of Jesus, stranger of the faith to reject Jesus, but it's another thing for a person who's been in God's church, for a person who's been around God's people, tasting of God's word, experiencing conviction of the spirit. It's another thing for that person to say after all those blessings and all those experiences, you know what, I think what the world offers is better than Christ. If you're here today and for some reason you just like being around church, you just like being around God's people, hearing God's word being preached, but in your heart you've settled it, you've settled it that you have absolutely no intention of giving yourself fully to Jesus, you have absolutely no intention of him being your everything. If you're here and you're playing games and you know you're playing games, what the Bible is saying is that it will be better for you to leave today at the end of the service never to come back never to come back, that your judgment may be more bearable for you if you never come back, than if you stick around and hear more and more and experience more and more of God's presence and his word just to eventually turn away and reject him. More bearable for you. I don't know what that means. I just know Jesus said it, right? And very quickly in closing, why is all of this grace why is all of this grace, all these threats? It doesn't sound like grace. It doesn't feel like grace. It makes me feel scared. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Why is God's threatening grace nevertheless his grace to us? When my son Malachi, my oldest son, when he was three years old, we had to just watch him like a hawk because he would just wander away. You know, you'd be somewhere, you'd just be gone. And so one of the places I hated taking him to was Phil's Ice House on Burnett because there's that outdoor area, you know, and then there's that little wall that separates you from a pleasant dining experience from the certainty of a death of a kid running out into burnt traffic. And I wasn't just being a new dad that was paranoid. Like one time we caught him like trying to squeeze in through the gap in the wall, you know. And so because I love my son, because I want him to be with me and not get killed by a car, I gave him two promises. I would say, Malachi, if you stay with me, don't go running off, I'll give you the precious and very great promise of Amy's ice cream after dinner, okay? And for the same reason, same reason, because I love him and don't want him to die, I would give him another promise. I would say, Malachi, and if you disobey me, if you run out into the street, I promise you that a car is gonna run you over and you're gonna die a hot and painful death. 
So think about the space of a three-year-old. Ice cream? Hot death? You know, like, like real joyful to real serious. He doesn't know how to process this. And, and that's like us sometimes, right? We read portions of the scripture and it sounds amazing. God's gonna save us. God's gonna give us all these promises, but then promises judgment and wrath and eternal hell. And we don't know what to do with all that. But don't you see, the promises, they sound very different. They feel very different, but the purpose is the same. The purpose is to keep my son with me, safe and alive, and that's why it's grace. I don't stop at the promise of ice cream. I don't stop at the promise of ice cream because the consequence of him disobeying is too great. I have to also give him the grace of my threats. Do you see why God gives us both? And don't you see that it's us receiving both at the cross? When we look at the cross, as Christians, it's easy for us to see it as very precious and great promises, right? But don't you see at the cross, he's also giving us his threatening grace, saying this will happen to you if you reject him. It's also threatening grace. And here's the other thing. Now, because he's my son, so far as it is up to me, I will not let him run out into the street. I'm not going to watch him run off and just say, well, I told him, I promised him ice cream. And I warned him, right? That's his choice. No. Christians, this is why you can't lose your salvation. If we could lose our salvation, we would lose our salvation. Just like Malachi, if he could run off into the street even after I warned him, he would run off into the street, but he won't be able to because I won't let him. Because he's my son, I'm not gonna let him run out into the street. And so was the threat real then? Was I being... Truthful, was I just like trying to trick him? Yes, it is a true statement, isn't it? That if he runs out into the street, he will die. Just like it is a true statement, true warning that if we reject Jesus, then there's going to be wrath and judgment forever. Because he's my son, I'm not gonna let him run out into the traffic and die. And what would I be willing to do to stop him? Well, just about anything, right? I'll do everything short of destroying him so that he would not be destroyed. And that's God's commitment to you. That's how safe you are. But that's how terrorizing it is to be in the love of God, isn't it? Church, if Jesus has saved you, you belong to him. He loves you. He wants you. He wants you to be with him and enjoy him and flourish as you obey his word. And because you're his, because he loves you, and he doesn't want you to fall into destructive heresies, he offers you the grace of his precious and very great promises. And he offers you the grace of his very terrible and perilous threats. But don't be afraid. That's not his point in giving you those threats. Don't be afraid so far as it depends on him. And it does, doesn't it? It does depend on him. He's gonna keep you. He will endure you all the way to the end. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that all of it is good. Father, forgive us for running to parts of the scriptures that make us feel good and running away from parts of the scriptures that make us feel uncomfortable and make us afraid. Father, all of your word is good and it's precious and all of your word is your grace to us. Father, help us to be a people who sees and loves the fullness of who you are 
as we love and embrace the fullness of your word. We thank you that you are a God who keeps. We thank you that you are a God who perseveres. We thank you that you are a God who saves. We thank you that you are a God who refuses to let us run out into destructive heresies. Now to him who is able to keep you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you with blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.